Welcome to the Chime Opioid Action Center podcast, where healthcare leaders explore how technology is making an impact in the fight to end the opioid crisis. Here's today's moderator. Welcome and thank you for joining us for this episode of the Chime Opioid Action Center podcast. My name is Scott Weiner. I'm an emergency physician at Brigham Women's Hospital, an associate professor at Harvard Medical School, and I'm the director of research for Bicycle Health. Today, we're going to hear from a leading professional about pain, opioids, interoperability, and hopefully some predictions for the future as well. With that, I'm delighted to welcome my guest today is Dr. Todd Rowland. Dr. Rowland has more than 25 years of healthcare experience with roles including as a practicing physician, as a CEO of a health information exchange, as a CMIO, and most recently, Enterprise Senior Vice President and CIO. He's worked with multidisciplinary teams to deliver solutions using several IT platforms, including Allscripts, Cerner, eClinicalWorks, McKesson, Meditech, Optum, and many other technologies. Today, we'll be focusing on pain, and we'll be leveraging Dr. Roland's experience working in physical medicine and rehabilitation. Welcome, Todd. Great. Well, thank you, Dr. It's it's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for going through that the long introduction. Um, it probably just means that I've lived long enough to have experienced those things. Uh, but um, That's hopefully wisdom. we can talk about kind of what I think of my three phases, you know, relative to this whole situation, you know, that we're in. Because, you know, we've all been practicing long enough to have some kind of perspective on how this thing, you know, how things got started and what we've been trying to, to do about it. Yes, that's a great framework that we could even start from. And so I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about, about your training. I mean, your, your specialty is PM&R, which I always feel like it's a it's an under-the-radar specialty. It's, um, even in medical school, you know, a couple of students went into it, and we weren't even clear what that was. Um, but it's a very important specialty. It does, does a lot of great work with patients. And so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the specialty for those who are unfamiliar. And then yeah. just really talk about yeah. those, the early years of, like, how you were using opioids um, during your training. Yeah, so, you know, PM&R is a specialty, believe it or not, it's been around since the late 1940s, and it really coalesced to serve a need after World War II when so many injured veterans were coming back. There was really a big need, you know, to take care of amputees and these folks that have pretty severe injuries. Um, so it's been around as a boarded specialty for a very long time. Um, there's about 11,000 physicians in the specialty, which still make it a relatively small specialty, and not every medical school has it. So I remember when I was at Indiana University, we didn't have a department. And so I didn't find out about it until my senior year in med school. Um, And then I trained at Ohio State uh, University in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, I finished that training in 1993. And for anybody who was practicing at that time, there was really a lot of emphasis on kind of under treatment of pain. Uh, there was kind of called the fifth vital sign, and there was a lot of emphasis, and there was a lot of professional education going on with physicians. And I think as a young physician, I felt a lot of pressure to do a better job, you know, with pain management, you know, and, and maybe we were perceiving that we were doing. Um, as part of your PM&R training, obviously, you, we learn how to use medications, but we do a lot of work in non-medication therapy, uh, which I'll talk about, you know, things like physical therapy, um, using different things like ultrasound, other modalities, um, t- working with people on exercise programs that they can tolerate and ways to get back into activity. 
and even really ways to change how they do their work. You know, you could call it ergonomics. So when I've worked with patients who've had work-related injuries, it's often really important to kind of to say, well, how are you going to re-enter work? And then how are you going to not be injured again? You know, is there something that you're doing in your workplace or the employer's doing that could be changed? So there's lots of different things that, you know, him and our docs do. Obviously, medications are really important, and we kind of live through that opioid, um, you know, time too. Yeah, and I do want to ask you about the non-pharmacologic treatments for pain, but I, I do want to focus at least initially on the opioids. You, right. you really did live through that period of, again, pain was the fifth vital sign. Did you actually experience it when the pharma reps came to detail you and uh, tried to get you to, to prescribe more, more medications like OxyContin? And just wondering if yeah. you can explain what that, I, that experience was like. I was really in the eye of that storm because if you think about it in the early 90s to later 90s of, you know, companies like Purdue we're putting a lot of effort into getting pharmaceutical representatives in physician offices. And I was in a private practice, you know, at that period of time, doing a lot of musculoskeletal care, treating people with neck pain, low back pain, you know, and a lot of those folks, unfortunately had chronic pain. So they were really struggling, you know, in terms of pain management and the information that we got provided was really not accurate um, and quite manipulated in retrospect. And as a physician in your 30s, you maybe aren't quite as skeptical, you know, as you should be, you know, when you're getting information. Um, and, you know, so things like OxyContin was presented to us uh, that had very pretty low addictive potential, which I think we all know in retrospect that that's not accurate. And that was something that probably they knew quite a bit about. Um, so... You know, I'll talk about it a little bit, but I think this is really important for young physicians just out of training to hear. It's really important to slow down a little bit when you make decisions and think about what your treatment philosophy is going to be and does it make sense in terms of the whole picture and really take time to talk with senior physicians and just talk to them about their life experiences. You know, that, that's something that I think in retrospect, I wish I had done more of. That's really insightful. And it, for the whole, the whole patient picture, again, is gets to what you were talking about for the treatment of pain is not just opioids and often it's not just medicines either, but right. it, it currently seems like it's a challenge about accessing non-pharmacologic treatments. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit, like what, what are the challenges with, with yeah. getting physical therapy, with getting chiropractic, not chiropractic, but physical uh, acupuncture, uh, whatever will work for patients. Um, yeah, there's just a whole list yeah. of things. And, you know, I think anybody who's accessed the healthcare system knows, first of all, it's hard to know what's available and hard to navigate. Um, and then often your insurance company may not, you know, provide a benefit or they may not include payment for whatever that is. So I would imagine it's pretty challenging to be on the insurance side and say, well, what should we pay for? What should we not pay for? And you know, my experience with insurance companies and working with the physicians there is that they, you know, try to take the evidence that they have available to them and say, you know, there's good evidence that this works. But I will tell you that in just kind of forwarding to this third phase of my career where I'm working now, two days a week, I'm doing inpatient rehabilitation in academic medical centers and community hospitals. And it's not these treatments are often not on what I would call the formulary. They're, they're not available 
in order. So it's not something that I'm allowed to order. And, and, and an example would be, there's several of these on the market where it looks like kind of a brace you put around your knee or your elbow. It has a cooling function. It has a vibration function. Um, some of these things are they're FDA approved. They have really great evidence that they're helpful, that they can reduce uh, use of pain medications, re uh, reduce opioid use. Um, and as a practicing physician, it's kind of frustrating to me that I know about these things, but and I'm seeing the patients, but I'm not able to order those, right? And then even when we work with people as outpatients, um, you know, the cost of kind of medical devices can be, you know, higher than we'd all like them to be. So even if I can order that and it still might be kind of an out-of-pocket expense, you know, for a patient and a family. And, you know, often people who are having chronic pain may not be working and they may have a lot of financial struggles. So, you know, there's a lot of, diff there's a lot of financial difficulties, you know, really around that. Um, and, you know, that's, I think that's a common concern that all physicians have, right? We, we, we get kind of constrained by what we can do depending on where we work. And it's unfortunate when sometimes the easier thing could be the more harmful thing. Again, like prescribing a medication as opposed to something that's, that's not a medicine. Yeah. Is I'd there... say we're kind of a medication nation. You know, we, yeah. we pop the pill first and because it seems easier convenient, but obviously in the longer term, that hasn't turned out to be the case with the opioid crisis. Is there a solution there? Should we be lobbying as physicians to try and get this durable medical equipment paid for? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think there's a lot of really good medical expertise and many inventors behind these devices. And I'd love to see more visibility for their work um, and what they're doing uh, because they're doing a lot of really good research. And I think we need to put more funding into non-medication research, particularly if we really want to seriously decrease opioid use because um, people have pain. And so you can't just ignore the pain. We have to do something about it. People have some pretty intense pain. And if, if there's good evidence that it, uh, you know, makes a difference, that's important. So, you know, the research is important, but I also think the policy where Medicare, Medicaid, you know, CMS gets maybe a little more hands-on with, you know, trying to find ways to promote this amongst themselves and other private insurance companies, where it's not just on, it can't just be the physicians really doing this work. I mean, we need a lot of help from everybody. And I, my feeling is efforts like CHIME have happened because family members uh, have had some, you know, have had challenges. And so we're all experiencing this opioid crisis. Uh, so anything that can be done to treat pain that's not an opioid medication, I think should be seriously looked at. Yeah, definitely. And uh, yeah, this is a nice segue because if you mentioned what Chime does, which is a lot around health IT. And so I wanted to take a deeper dive into what we could do with health IT, interoperability, et cetera. But I want to start first with just PDMPs and just hear what your experience is with, with PDMPs, why they work, why they don't work, just your, gener your general take. Okay, good. Well, I, I'm kind of one of those weird guys that decided to combine medical informatics with PIMNR. Yeah, pretty early in my career. And I did a fellowship at Harvard MIT in the 1990s. Um, and it was actually kind of on your stomping grounds right there. I used to live in that part of town. Um, it was a great place to learn. And this is really 
you know, even before electronic medical records were, you know, kind of commercially available, there, there were some interesting things happening. So I've kind of lived through this phase of all these electronic solutions, so to speak, electronic medical records, you know, other systems you log into. And PDMP is a prescription drug monitoring program. That's what the acronym stands for. And that really, um, it's another separate system in, you know, governed by states. And there's some collaboration amongst the states, but not nationally, where, uh, you know, clinicians who are prescribing opioid medications are often required to log into these systems, right? Um, and the intention with that is good. It's to say, hey, and you, here's the pattern of prescription uh, that this person has received by multiple physicians. The problem with that is that it doesn't always give a comprehensive picture um, in, in a timely fashion, depending on if you live in a tri-state area, multi-state area, uh, that data may not flow as quickly as you'd like. It's certainly much better access. It's much better information than I had when I was prescribing initially. Often six months later, after well, after the patient was in my practice, I could see that they had were kind of doctor shopping and had gotten prescriptions from multiple physicians. So it's a, it's a lot more timely than it used to be. The difficulty, just like any electronic system, is one more login is one more login, right? And I think all physicians you know, could quickly say, well, I, I can't handle one more login. You know, the cognitive burden that comes with that is really difficult. So just in when I'm on call, and I'll be on call this weekend, I'll have, I met the minimum number of logins that I have to do are six for all the different hospital systems. And I have a separate username and a separate password and a whole separate way of handling security. And I can see how that has happened. You know, it's something that each hospital system and in, in state is individually doing. However, it puts a lot of cognitive burden, a lot of workflow interference with physicians. And I think there's a real opportunity, you know, thinking about this more systematically. Why don't we use something like the National Provider Identifier, which all physicians have that, you know, that, that uniquely identifies you as a physician in this country. And it'd be great if when I did my credentials at the hospital, where I did my login, that was a way, that was part of the process of getting signed up and identifying me. Instead of having some username that I didn't pick, that I can't remember. Uh, and, you know, you can imagine with all the password aging and the authentication on your mobile phone, it gets really challenging. Right, so even getting prepared for a call, I had to kind of go through all my six logins and make sure that they're all working. So I, I think organizations like Chime, you know, that have CIO leaders have an opportunity to sit back and say, well, what, what could we do to really simplify a physician login to all these systems in a way that protects privacy, you know, is, is in line with regulations um, and is, is something that, that still makes us sleep, be able to sleep at night relative to, you know, the risks for hackers and other things, right? Um, and a lot of these things have developed kind of as band-aids to, to problems. And then all the unintended consequences are what I just talked about, right? So there's some ways to think about interoperability uh, that we should be thinking about. 
And my experience from interoperability comes from really starting and running a health information exchange in Indiana. Yeah, um, to hear about that. And we did, I did that for several years. So we were able to get lab data, x-ray reports, a lot of diagnostic reports in a pretty good workflow, you know, for doctors who used EMRs and ones who didn't. Um, so there's ways to do it. Um, I'm pretty disappointed still that the statewide efforts are not as coordinated across the states as they might be. And it seems like there's some, some challenges with getting that kind of data flow of PDMP data into health information exchanges, into electronic medical records in a way that would be easier for physicians to use. I think we're, we're making strides. I, I, I'll tell you now for our system, we were able to get one-click integration with our EHR. So right. when we log in, we already have our single login and push the button and our PDMP pops up. And it's even gotten to the point where it automatically queries neighboring states too. So we can at least see that because before right. it was just, just piecemeal. So it's, uh, it's, it's immensely better than it used to be, but it still feels like it's missing something. It still feels like... Um, you know, we, we were able to access records from other hospitals, but it's it's clunky. Um, some of the systems that aren't on the same the same system as us don't show up at all. So it's right. all this, this piecemeal, uh, not efficient way of sharing data. Well, I mean, you know, as a practicing ER doc, you, you see that, right? And you have that need to get information. But you also happen to be in the, one of the most sophisticated regions of the country with Boston and the Harvard hospital systems. So they've kind of invented and implemented a lot of the most cutting edge interoperability pieces. I wish I could say that the experience you're having is what other clinicians are having around the country. It isn't really. So you, you, you happen to be very fortunate in that you have that experience. Um, so I think we need to get the rest of the country closer to that one click experience and kind of continuously work to say, you know, what, what is the best way to share information? So I feel like I got as much as I could so that I'm as prepared to take care of a patient that I don't know as possible, but done in a way that's respectful, you know, to the patient's privacy, right? Because you know, there's a lot of sensitive information, you know, that's in these systems relative to mental health, uh, drug use problems. Um, some of it may not be completely accurate. Right, you know, the you know that gets in the system, and somehow it's not accurate. So I think I'm really wanting to make sure we have a good balance in what the providers can see and use, but also in a way that makes consumers feel confident, you know, that this is being done for their benefit, and and not as a policing action, so to speak. Right, because you know, as physicians, we're not policemen. You know, we're there to help you. Um, obviously we see and hear things that, you know, are interesting. <laughs> uh, I can only imagine what you've experienced in your career. Right. Uh, but we're there to kind of help those folks with whatever we can, you know, to get them feeling better. So, um, anything that I say, I hope it doesn't sound too simplistic. Um, I, I do think we have, we've made definitely improvement since gosh, before 2010, it was really difficult to log in these systems. It's, yeah, there's more EMR integration like you're experiencing, but it's still really not where it needs to be. Yeah, so can you talk a little bit about that? You did, you did mention the concept of the NPI number, which yeah. all, all providers have. And can you, can you explain that a bit more about how that would be carried out? 
Yeah, so one of the things that's interesting is when you run a health information exchange, you're always trying to say, well, how do I authenticate or be sure that I'm talking about the right patient before I combine data? And how do I be sure that I'm identifying the person who's supposed to be able to log in and look at this information, right? So one of the things, you know, with the 300 physicians that we worked with in our HIE, we we're always trying to make sure that we could uh, carefully identify them and make sure they had the right, you know, credentials and privileges to be there, but do it in a way that was respectful to their time. And so PD, uh, the MPI is kind of great because we have a national provider identifier. We don't have a national patient identifier and we have social security numbers, there's, those are problematic. You know, there's gosh, over 300 million patients in the country, that's a lot bigger math problem. But, you know, physicians are somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe a million or so, you know, in this country. So the math of that particular problem is simpler. So we actually, you know, have a way, you know, to, to kind of know who those million uh, folks are. And I, I would really, really like to see Chime dig in a little bit and say, what could be done with a national provider identifier in, in both credentialing, you know, for hospital privileges um, and also, you know, logging into IT systems and do it in a way that reduces administrative burden on the physician and the organization. So it'd be really fun to see projects done where people, you know, leading organizations try to do that and then see what they learn and then share that with the group. I think that seems like a chime kind of thing to do. Would would you this I'm just my wheels are spinning. Would you even carry that into biometrics where it could be like, you know, my thumbprint is my thumbprint and wherever I'm credentialed, I could log into a system? Yeah. And I think that has to always be done in a way that respects physicians' sense of privacy, right? Because what we're trying to do is ensure that you trust the system and we trust who you are. Right. So this is a trust network. And that's kind of not a technology concept, but I think most things in life move at the speed of trust. So, and you know that when you're meeting a new patient family, you're trying to build trust as quickly as you can to make them feel reassured. So their anxiety level goes down so they can tell you what's going on. And so they'll, you'll get the best information, you know, that you can get. So physicians were always dealing with how do we get people to trust us? You know, some of that is, we have this, you know, long history of trust and ethical standards, you know, the Hippocratic Oath and everything else like that. Um, but as we develop systems, I think we need to make sure that we make sure we get all the physician attitudes involved, right? Because you might be excited about the biometric, but maybe one of your colleagues was like, well, that's kind of an invasion of my privacy. I don't want to do that. So can we do a system that can do both? Right. So if you have the biometric and you're okay with that, and we're doing a, as good a job as we can to be stewards of that data and protect it from hackers, so to speak. So you can't have identity theft because that, that's what I'd be concerned about is my identity theft. Right. Um, but then you should get some increased convenience for that. Right. When you walk around, you should be able to quickly identify yourself even without your badge and say, I, can, I'm, I am who I am, I can get into things. And that work has been done on a small scale. And a lot of it's frankly been done in Boston, <laughs> you know, over the years. So I've seen it up and working, but scaling that up to a bigger system is always challenging. And I think, 
you got to spend a lot of time on the trust building, you know, and I think every CIO out there in the audience listening to this would understand what I mean by that. Sure. Yeah. Are you saying that the Boston is not like the rest of the country? Well, just a little bit. Uh, <laughs> that's why I went there for training, you know, because it was, you know, the cutting edge place and gosh, I hope, I hope you still are because we need that, right? We always need these places where the cool stuff's happening and then we can learn from them. It's been interesting to see with, with the promulgation of PDMPs too, because I think that that was a huge fear at the beginning was all the sensitive data would be there. Everyone's controlled substance prescription history. And, uh, you know, I'm going to knock on wood, but I'm, I'm actually remarkably impressed that we haven't had a big data breach that would, would, would breach public trust, because I think that that is a very real possibility. And that would be uh, extremely yeah. detrimental to the programs. And I think it's a guarantee that we'll have some breaches because they're, they're not completely avoidable, but um, doing things about how we organize where the data is stored. There's a lot of technology things that can be done that make it, make that information maybe not so centralized. It can feel centralized to the user. Like I can see across state lines, but maybe that data doesn't need to be stored in just one target database, right? And that, again, that's a geeky thing to get into, but Chime people talk about that stuff all the time. There's ways to federate data where, and that's a lot of the health information exchanges have worked on that because, you know, we have to get people to trust us. And I know that early on states like New York had an opt-in where uh, the patient's data was not automatically included, right? They had to be, have this conversation and say, yes, it's okay to include my data in the health information exchange. Which is probably yeah, not, not workable, right? Well, 98% of the time people said yes. Mm. So it worked pretty decent. And then of the 2% that didn't want it, some additional work got about 90% of those folks to, to understand why it was being done and how the data was being used. Mm. So it, 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 is, it does take more work and it really goes back to that trusting thing. And so how you explain something to someone really matters. And you know that, right? You can get somebody pretty worried about something or you can get them to have information and feel comfortable. It, sure. you know, it, there's a lot of skill in that, in that designing how that communication happens. Sure. Well, again, with that, I think we'll conclude. Thank you so much, Dr. Rowland. Really interesting to hear your experiences. You've, you bring so much wisdom and uh, experience to this conversation. So we really appreciate the work that you're doing and that you shared with us uh, today. And um, just thank you for listening to all the, the people in the audience to the Chime Opioid Action Center podcast. Uh, visit opioidactioncenter.com for this and other episodes. And take care and be safe. Thank you. Great. Thank you.